2: Forty years ago this month, on the 11th of October 1982, after 437 years underwater, Henry VIII's warship, the Mary Rose, was raised from the seabed of the Solent. But how had they gone about finding a lost Tudor ship buried deep in the silt of the seabed? In fact, immediately after the Mary Rose sank in 1545, there were attempts to retrieve her. But it soon became a simple salvage operation to recoup her guns using expert African divers. We'll learn more about this in our next podcast. But in 1552, when no more could be done, the wreck was abandoned and her location was forgotten. In 1836, brothers John and Charles Dean discovered her site and recovered several large guns, but because her hole was largely buried under the seabed, they believed that the Mary Rose must have been destroyed and so left the rest of her alone. It wasn't until 1965 that modern attempts to retrieve the Mary Rose began. In today's podcast, we'll learn about how she was raised, how one goes about conserving a Tudor warship and the many objects which were on board and what we can learn about the people who went down with her. Dr Alexandra Hildred was part of the team who excavated Henry VIII's warship 40 years ago and is the Head of Research and Curator of Ordnance and Human Remains at the Mary Rose Trust. And I spoke to her at the Mary Rose Museum.
3: It all started in the mid-60s. It was basically after the war, scuba equipment, which had been you know, used a fair amount in the Second World War, was now more accessible and cheaper for people to use. And a lot of subaqua clubs in various towns began to appear. And locally, the South Sea Aqua Club, Alexander McKee, who's a naval historian, who lived close by here, was a member of the club and decided he wanted to look for historic ships within the Solent, the Mary Rose being the one that would be the sort of rose in the crown. And so they formed an active diving club that then went and physically searched areas of the seabed, using things like the Cowdray engraving as a rough guide, because you can see on that the sinking of the Mary Rose. So that was used from the very beginning and then looked at hydrographic charts and narrowed down the area. Then brought in things like the very beginnings of sub-bottom profilers so some of the first attempts to look for historic wreck in England. It had been tried in Tobermory to look for Spanish galleon, but there was an American who was over, a professor from MIT, who was working on the Tobermory galleon, and he was persuaded to come and look on the Solent and found an anomaly, which then you bring in things like metal detectors and more side scan and some bottom soap profiler, and you'd sort of narrow down the area, and then it clinched with finding a hydrographic chart. The first charts that had been looked at were the oldest ones available, looking for the position of the Mary Rose. And in the end, Alex McKee and his team began to look at all the ones afterwards, and in fact, it was the one closest to when John Dean had worked the site between the 1830s and the 1840s that in 1841, there was an ex-Marxist spot of the three wrecks he'd worked, including the Mary Rose. And from then on, it was just narrowing down the area, more sub-bottom profiling, and just eyes in the seabed. And eventually, holes were dug in the right places, and a gun was found in 1970, which was very, very specifically of the type that was on the Mary Rose. I think it was the 1st of May, 1971, the first three or four timbers were actually a line of about 40, which... Nobody knew what they were looking at then, but it was the port frames at the stern of the ship. And then from then on, just following those timbers around to get a ship shape and then trying to work out which was a bow and the stern and digging trenches at each end. And finally, one trench showed the rudder and the transoms, revealed the fact that the rudder was there in 1975 and the degree of angle was able to be measured at 60 degrees. So from then on, they really knew what they had. Mary's Trust was formed very early in 1979, and Margaret took over as archaeological director with the Prince of Wales, who'd already done a couple of dives on the site as the president, and they bought a diving support vessel and went to sea in February and didn't come back that year until December and did something like 6,800 dives in that year, and that was what was to follow over the next three years to finish completely emptying the ship, having realized that there was a coherent structure, at least from the stern to the beginning of the bow castle, and thereafter that the structure gave out.
2: So what was it like to raise the Mary Rose
3: after so long? I asked Dr Hildred about the experience. It was amazing and the lift was absolutely stunning. We always knew it was going to happen. It was just a case of when and where. The excavation itself was unbelievable. In the last year, the race against time in order to empty the ship and we were still emptying the ship as the salvage and recovery team were tunneling underneath to fit the backing plates for the wires that would eventually be used to lift the ship, you almost didn't have time to think about it. But then finally, those last few days just before the lift, with the very slow jacking up of the hull hung by the underwater lifting frame, that gave you time to think about it. And when then it finally came through the surface, you just thought, my goodness... We've done it. But there were several times on the way that you knew. There was a report once Chris Dobbs and Margaret Rule went in and could see the ship sort of slowly swinging, the whole thing swinging just above the seabed. And there were times like that which you never forget. And then coming in, I had left with the helicopter from Togmore and Sleipner to the press centre on board on South sea Common. And so when the ship came in the evening, I was actually down on the ramparts watching it come through. And I could not believe, for me, just seeing the throng of people and hearing the clapping and all the noises of all the ships as the Claxtons as it came in was a memory and it just thought all these people are really interested in what we've done and we were in our own little bubble for that amount of time just seeing that suddenly realized everybody else does care as well and i suppose the outside broadcast which was then the largest and longest outside broadcast done by the bbc that begins to get it home but when you actually see the people of south sea thronging to see this thing that has been your life. So of course, it's important to you. But suddenly, it means it's something else. But also, it means it's a huge legacy. It's something that we've made it happen. We have to make sure that wonderful ship and all the objects, then A, are visible to the public, but B, are in as good a condition or can be kept in as good a condition as those wonderful Tudor silts did for so long. So it's happiness, worriness, the fact that we were all very tired and everything else all at once. So I think the range of emotions was something that it's almost a lifetime, packed up in a few days. And for everyone who saw it at the time or who has seen it since, there was that moment,
2: that jolt, when we thought it was going to fall back in. I remember watching it probably on Newsround or something in the 80s and it being this most extraordinary moment.
3: Yeah, I was at the press tent on Southsea Common and saw what had happened and thinking, how am I going to explain this? And then suddenly you realise, OK... The pins come out, and then you see that the strop has been taken round. One of the four strops that we used to lift the underwater lifting frame with the mirror suspended beneath it was shorter than the rest, and that coupled with, obviously, one of the pegs, because there were holes in all of the legs so that you could adjust them so that the top of the lifting frame was absolutely even with the mirrors hanging beneath it. So there was adjustment all the way. It was one of the complications of the lift, is making sure the wires that suspending it were all equally taking the weight so that it wasn't putting any strain on any. Part of the structure and you can see immediately that one of those foreshortened straps strops and the fact that whatever the pin is it gave way and in fact when we looked at it afterwards it was a scaffold pipe rather than a proper pin that had been chosen obviously the pin couldn't be found the closest thing was used but those two things together made that jolt happen and it's just luck because you could see that the frame literally just missed i think it grazes one timber and there was a bit of paint on one of the timbers but other than that it looked pretty good as well as the ship herself, there were
2: all those wonderful objects. And the collections here are full of those artefacts. The museum here is replete with them, and it's in the most amazing collection. Tell us about the process of finding those and bringing them up and what they are.
3: It's very wide-ranging. And also, I think the most important thing is that you have to remember that potentially every single one of those, because they were known to be on board at a specific moment in time, July 1545, when the ship sank, can be indicators of types of objects that were in use, certainly on board a warship at that particular moment in time. And so we've got things like, for example, over 300 shoes, which shows such a wide variety in styles, and those are leather. And Leather doesn't necessarily survive that well. It's not something you would think to put into a museum necessarily unless it was at a leather museum. So you're looking at the everyday objects that don't often get to specific museums purely because of the great survival of organics within the Mary sediments. So one sword that was recovered, iron doesn't survive as well in our particular environment. And Whereas we might have 65 wooden grips of a sword we've only got one complete sword because it fell out of either a gun port or over the side of the ship and was buried immediately by the weight of the ship on top of it so it wasn't found until the tunneling underneath when a royal engineer came up brandishing it and everybody on deck nearly fainted because it was the only sword he don't break it oh my goodness but that now is the major coat hanger for the whole dating of the evolution of the shape of that basket hilt so it can be the same with almost every single object so the wealth of them And that covers all strata of society which you get on the boat. And if you actually think about it, you've got officers and the main people who run the ship, the captain and the crews. Then you've got the professionals like the purser and the carpenters and the master gunner and cook, etc. But then you've got your soldiers and your mariners and your gunners. And the mariners are by far representative of almost everyday society. They're taken from all over. A lot of them have shown that we can say that they might have come from the southwest of England. So you've got different societies all together within this one working place, which unlike something like a ship which is a trading ship, which we have evidence archaeologically for quite a lot, this is a living ship. You had to live there for however many months you went out on campaign, and it's also a fighting ship, so it's a very specific environment. When you found the objects, obviously you have to get your head around the fact that you're at an angle of 60 degrees, so when you're looking down at something, first you're going to have the residue that had fallen from the port side, the missing side of the ship, so she landed on her starboard side. And when you go down stratigraphically, you sort of have to think, okay, those would have been originally on the port side of the ship. And once you get to a certain position, and usually it's where the back of the gun carriages can be seen for the beginning of the starboard side of the ship because they're going out of the gun ports on the starboard side, you begin to realize you're looking at that area and that then becomes a cabin or you can look at the objects that are in that geographic space and work out what it is the stuff on top is a bit harder because you're missing the structure and you realize that as it sort of came over perhaps things got moved a bit but once you get to that you're actually almost really swimming into a cabin. So when we dismantled the outside of the carpenter's cabin, you were actually looking into a cabin which had got shelves on either side. The first object, which is sort of slightly higher than the rest, was a lantern. So you can imagine that as being a hanging lantern. And then you get down to these benches with all the objects on them. And then under them, baskets with just the handles of tools. And so it was like excavating a room. You just have to use your sixth sense to realise that you're swimming on your side and it's all at 60 degrees. And then those objects, as you saw them, you just very carefully expose them, not too much, and it depends on how much time you had within a particular dive, whether or not you've got the time to completely excavate them, and you had the container in order to lift them safely. So if it's something that's fragile, you see it, okay, it's a bit of basketry. I'm not going to lift that now because I haven't got a container, I haven't got a paintbrush, I'm going to prepare a lifting thing for that and come back later and move on to something else. So Always you were making these decisions about what you could and couldn't lift, and obviously the first thing you do is try and expose enough to work out what it was, then measure it by a very simple measuring system we had. Once we got into the structure of the ship and you realize you're on the side, you've got basically the beams of each deck around you. So you could find four that were conveniently around the center of your area and take a hook from each of the four in turn and just do a direct distance. And then a mathematical program would give you the location of that object, where it was in space and how far it was below that layer of marks on it. So it was quite simple, but if possible, you'd survey most things in. If you had a lot of objects, you might just do a sketch plan. So we took down with a netting bag, which had a drawing board in it with architect's paper so you can draw on it, and a pencil, all of which were tied onto strings so that you didn't put your pencil down and it disappear in the tide, and the same with everything else, you had to make sure everything was on strings. And a folding rule so that you could do a measurement and then a long 30-meter tape, and you take that on every dive in a specific place. So the diving was worked out very carefully depending on who the person was who was working. So we had volunteer divers over 500 over the duration of 79 to 82, but on any one day, you would have four or five boats of 12 new divers coming in. So the 12 divers would come in, they would do their dive times with the fresh air that they had, because they hadn't absorbed any nitrogen over the night, one would hope, and do their dive, do the dive log, the drawing of what they did, what they brought up, the finds that had been allocated to them in the American thing, they'd write it down, the numerical number given by the find assistant, write that down, and that became the beginning of the archive their dive log and that's what with their sketch plan and their measurements and then they would go off and the next lot would come on so as that happens the tides are changing across the ship what we wanted to do is make sure that the same people and they came for generally two weeks at a time would be in the same area for all of the time they were there so they got used to it and that's quite complicated when the tides were changing so this rota of new people which was organized by maximum of 12 of us on board at any time and that would be we worked two days on one day off so on any day they'd be the remnants of two days teams of archaeologists and finds people and the dive safety officers so that was the normal crew then you then had the volunteer divers divers were taught to use an airlift so one of the first things that happened was a tour of the site a whole tour of the site which was very well laid out so we had ropes from the bottom of the diving ladder to each side of the north end of the site which is where the bow would have been had we got one but towards the bow of the ship and then from then on a 35 meter grid that ran the length of the ship and the width of the ship so the width is about 12 meters and then we had a a bit of extra and then two other pipes that went down that took the air from the airlifts and along each of those between eight and eleven airlifts so because the tides went across the site you could work the main and the upper deck when the tides were going one way and the storage deck in the hold when the tides were going the other way and then create these linear mounds on either side of the ship. The visibility was generally 50 centimetres, a metre was good, anything above that was a real bonus. (laughs) Nil visibility, you were working by yourself but in an area that was predetermined and with a very good route down because you'd follow the lines and you never not follow the lines unless it was an emergency. And then you'd swim along the grid to the predetermined area which was marked by a trench number So usually people got to the right place, but these were volunteer divers who were used to diving in pairs, and we were all diving essentially alone in your own little area. And sometimes, as soon as you got deeper into the ship, you were literally crawling down in amongst the timbers into an area that sometimes you had a compartment on one side and perhaps even a compartment on the other in some instances, so in quite a small space by yourself just you and the objects in the ship and it was probably the most intense work that you could ever do because you're just so directed at what you were because you're in a confined environment with your senses you had senses but they weren't the same ones you use on land you've got very limited visibility you've not got that much smell you can smell a bit so when we had the washing pork cork carcasses you could smell that you could smell a bit of the tar the rope because we were using scuba for the archaeological work at scuba the tunneling was done in big helmets so that excluded the smell. We're using the airlift to have neutral buoyancy so you can float above the seabed or you can put your legs around the grid and hang down using this airlift, which is a 120 millimetre basically it's a plastic downpipe from a drain which has air that comes to it and an on-off switch so you turn it on and it creates suction but you can get it in such a way that it's not neutrally buoyant and you just feed the debris down to make our nice boil heap. so that's how we excavated it.
2: Once you've got a Tudor ship above the surface how do you go about conserving it and all those 19,000 artefacts? Professor Eleanor Schofield is Deputy Chief Executive at the Mary Rose Trust and is the person ultimately responsible for the conservation of the whole and the Trust's complete collection of objects. I asked her how much of the original Tudor ship remains.
4: In terms of the ship, when you look at it, it looks like we have about half of it. In reality, it's probably more like a third because we don't have the bow castle and the stern castle. Most of what we do have is the starboard side. We do have some of the port side, but only odd timbers. There was never enough for us to reconstruct it, which is why we have the museum as it is now, with the ship on one side and the artefacts where they were found adjacent to it.
2: And many people who might have come to the Mary Rose in the 80s or 90s will remember the ship being sprayed. Tell us about the process
4: of conservation that began once she had been raised the whole collection survived because it was buried under the sediment so this cuts off oxygen or really reduces it so typical procedures that would degrade organic materials like wood or cause corrosion they just can't happen so it kind of seals it so whilst it's really exciting when something is found it's kind of then a race against time right but once you expose it even to the seawater these processes that have been frozen in time will suddenly start happening so one of the key things when everything was raised is that it's put into water. So if we take the wood for example, that can look like it's in amazing condition and, you know, to be clear, everything in our collection is in amazing condition considering how old it is and how long it was in the sea. But it's a little bit deceptive because where there has been some degradation of the wood, so some of the wood is lost, it's been supported by water in it, so it looks kind of fuller then maybe it really is so if we just left it to dry it would very quickly shrivel and shrink and crack and things like that a bit like you know on the beach sometimes you might see bits of wood washed up and they look quite distorted and cracked it's things like that because they're degraded they're full of water they look great and then you just let all the water come out and there's no support there for the structure of it so everything was put into water everything was washed again if you imagine the seabed there'd be a lot of silt and sand and stuff all around it so it's getting rid of all of that getting rid of some of the salt in the seawater and then with the ship itself that was brought into dry dock 3 here sprayed continuously with water to keep it wet and cold water as well so it was about 5 degrees and the reason this is otherwise you can create a bit of a hotbed for where bacteria can thrive if you'll get up to kind of like 18 19 degrees so the temperature was kept cool to stop that happening. And that's where a lot of tests started happening on the wood to think, how are we going to conserve this? There were a lot of decisions that had to be made in terms of the best way to conserve it for the material itself, but also keeping in mind that we wanted people to be able to see it. So you do have some projects where the ship is completely taken apart. And there are pros to that in terms of being able to treat things in tanks and things like that. But we always wanted the ship to be open so people come and see it. Crucially, we're a charity and we don't get the government funding, so it's always been really important that the ship is there, that people can buy their ticket, come and see it. And that's always then fed back into the conservation.
2: How did you move from spraying it continually to getting to the place where we
4: are now, where we can see the ship in its entirety on the other side of the museum? So when the ship was first raised, it was sprayed continuously to keep it wet. And then we started doing trials on the wood to look at different treatments we could do. Now, what you're wanting to do with marine archaeological wood is basically put something into it that's gonna replace the water and give it some rigidity when it dries so that it doesn't shrivel and crack and things like that. We did trials on our own material but also looked at other projects around the world so particularly things like Vasa in Stockholm the Bremen cog in Bremerhaven they had all been raised and started treatment beforehand so we could look at their kind of lessons learned so far and we started using something called polyethylene glycol or peg which essentially is like a wax that then will is water soluble it will go into the wood and then gradually replace the water that's there So once this had been agreed and a kind of process of how much would we put in, in the 90s we started, instead of spraying with water, it was water plus some peg that we then gradually increased. And then we did a different type of peg, which then is sealing the surface of the wood. And then once all of that was going on, we were then looking at different drying regimes because it matters what air you're introducing to the ship. So the temperature, the humidity, the velocity of it, All of those things, if it's slightly different from one point to the other, it can give different drying rates, which then will change the end product. So when we opened this museum, where we have the ship and artefacts together, that was all tied very closely with the conservation because we needed the drying to start to be able to cut in the windows to the enclosure where the ship was for people to be able to see it. So there was lots of trials of different humidities and temperature, different steps to get to the right humidity. And that was actually the focus of someone's PhD work, which then went to look at lots of different types of wood. You've got the different orientations of wood as well, and this all makes a difference with how it dries. Um, So then a plan was developed for how it was going to be dried, which started in 2013. I actually started working here a year before that so then a lot of my job has been then monitoring how it dries and yeah at that point when we started drying was when we first of all had the windows into the ship and then a few years later when we knew that most of the moisture had come up or a significant amount had come out that's when we were able to open it all out have the floor to ceiling glazing and have the balcony at the top where you then go into that same enclosure with the ship
2: and that enclosure is one that is obviously still very carefully monitored. You've got your airlocks at both ends in order to create that perfect conservation environment.
4: Yeah, exactly. So it's really key for us wherever we have an artifact, the ship and all the many artifacts, that we have a control on the temperature, the humidity, the light levels as well. All of this can affect the materials over time. But yeah, particularly with the ship, during the initial stages of drying, it was really crucial to have that tightly controlled. And yeah, now in the museum, everywhere you see an artifact, it has a kind of band of temperature and humidity where we keep it. And all of this means that it keeps things stable. It means it's not taking on moisture because that can affect its weight. Also, if it's taking on moisture, it can cause chemical reactions to happen in the wood. These are really complicated materials. So the steadier we can keep everything, the easier it is for us to look after. And obviously with the long-term goal of the, Being there for as long as possible.
2: Okay, so in this period of time, what have you discovered in terms of your understanding of the materials, either of the ship itself
4: or of the artefacts? So, with the ship itself, I think one of the main things to note, and this has only really been in recent years that I've started to think of it this way, is you know, we talk about it being a wooden ship, but it isn't really anymore. It's Wood that's hundreds of years old. It's been degraded in a marine environment. We've added two different types of peg to it actually. There's been biocides put on it over time. And then actually one of the bits, which is a big focus of my work is there's lots of other stuff in there, which comes from the seawater. It comes from um, maybe artifacts that would have been nearby that decomposed in some way, that then seep into the wood. So you have this like massive mixture of things. And that means that to think of it like wood from a kind of stability point of view is just wrong because it's not gonna have the same mechanical or chemical properties. I mean, one of the things that's been really interesting is some of the findings from that. So there's elements that you get in the seawater that get into the wood and react with other things in the wood. And then when we started drying, we realised that that could cause a bit of a problem. These can develop, they can change and form acids which degrade the wood. We've also learnt as well that the peg that we've used to treat the wood this actually can act as a bit of a plasticizer as well. So it means that the wood can deform a bit. So you have this whole like combination of things and they all interact together. It's not like you can kind of look at the physical properties and think, right, we'll put them in them without in one box and we'll deal with that there and the chemical properties here. Because, you know, obviously, for example, if there's acid that's eating away some of the wood, that's going to affect the mechanical properties because it doesn't have the strength there anymore. So it's a huge thing to kind of jigsaw it all together. And we're now nine years after we started drying so we've been running these different projects looking at the moisture content looking at movement looking at what's in the wood and at the moment one of the focuses for me is then trying to piece all of those things together because they all interact together but they're all different types of data they all lead to different things and now it's trying to map it all together for the benefit of the Mary Rose but also for other projects because it can be really challenging to have all this information together so what we're hoping to do is be able to put together a maybe manual isn't the right word because there's always things that are different but at least our experience that then hopefully can help other projects around the world
2: and what about the collections the artifacts that you have here just the most extraordinary cornucopia of items nineteen thousand artifacts in total isn't it that tell us all about Tudor life how do you go about conserving those
4: it's a fantastic collection. My background's actually in material science and engineering. So in some ways, this is just a dream because there's so many different materials. And even if you then know what the base material was, they've changed. The other really key thing is these are not uniform, right? So if you've got something that maybe started as, I don't know, like brass, you don't know how it's changed like just because you look at one bit and it's got a crack in it or it's got some kind of corrosion you don't know that it's all the way through you don't know whether it's at the surface or not and that can make it really challenging to look after because I mean I actually started off not working in heritage at all so if you gave me a bit of material and said tell me about this the first thing I'm going to do is chop it in half (laughs) obviously with this you can't do that you have to kind of work around it and think and kind of start from a least destructive position and creep your way along and think what can you work out so yeah in terms of the collection i mean we have such a huge amount of materials there's quite a lot that what they really needed was just washing so to get rid of the silt and things like that to get rid of the salt from the seawater, and then thankfully they're fairly stable the main materials i've worked on is the wood the iron and the bricks And honestly, a lot of it is reactive because they're the ones that then we've seen problems with. Either if it's the ship, there's a bit of movement or with the bricks, we've seen crystals form which then can break it apart with iron I mean marine archaeological iron is notoriously difficult because it is a miracle that it's here right That it hasn't completely corroded they're the ones that have taken a bit more time but yes thankfully some of the other things so far but this could change over time right you know you don't know if you change some of the conditions or over time whether things will develop this is why it's kind of like an ongoing thing there'll always be a need for conservation here
2: Some of the things that excite me most are things like the knit combs, the rosary beads, the Tudor clothing that survives. We don't have very much clothing that survives from 500 years ago because air has degraded it. And yet you've got leather jerkins and boots and hats sitting in the collection just metres away from where we're talking. How do you conserve those?
4: So a lot of those actually are quite straightforward i mean we don't have a lot of them for the very reason that you've said that they're quite delicate We have some on display. I mean, I've worked here 10 years now, but it's probably only five years ago that then in one of our stores, I was going through, we've got a whole collection of then fragments. So they're just small amounts, but they're mind blowing because it'll be like little bits of knitted wool or felted wool and things like that. They blow my mind. It's the things that then when you connect with somebody doing something or making it, most of those there that survived, they were just washed and then dried. In a very controlled way sometimes some of the things say the leather they might have a bit of staining so where iron hasn't survived it's quite common that that will corrode and corrosion products will have that kind of orangey color and then we can use different agents which basically just like wipe it off the surface a lot of the materials that aren't very thick are the ones that were easier to conserve because you're not worried about everything that's in it that you can't see (laughs) Often that's the challenge. Say like with a cannonball, we've done lots of research on the iron cannonballs. And first of all, we started looking at scraping off bits of corrosion from the surface, but that kind of told us what we really already know. What you need to do is get into them, but obviously that's a more difficult decision to make, which we have done before because of balancing what we would be able to find out, the benefit to the greater collection. But yeah, typically the things that were kind of thinner where they could be washed, it was more likely at those earlier stages that things were pushed out of it that you didn't want to be there long term.
1: Death by tiger bites. Death by prodding. Death from overeating and overdrinking. Death from sexual excess. This is the subject of an obscure 13th century Chinese manual that marks the beginnings of the art of forensic science. I'm Dallas Campbell, and on my podcast, Patented History of Invention we have a new mini-series about the inventors and innovators behind forensics. I'll take you back to the days of the Raj, 1930s gangland America, and we'll have an Access All Areas Pass inside Britain's most inaccessible museum. Strange deaths, true crimes, weird books and more. Search for patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: I'm Afwa Hirsch.
1: I'm Peter Frankopan.
0: And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history.
1: This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra.
0: An iconic life full of romances, sieges, and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra?
1: Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose.
0: Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+.
2: In recent years, there's been some careful work to examine not only the objects and the ship herself, but the skeletons of those who went down with the ship. Some recent breakthroughs have come from analysing DNA. Dr Hildred explains.
3: When she was first raised, there wasn't an ancient DNA. It wasn't an established science. It was thought that it would be impossible to, A, extract it and amplify it, so that that's been changed because of the scientific work on it, but B, that you'd have the problem of contamination. And we actually tried quite early on by having some of our pig bone analyzed to see whether there was contamination with human DNA. And whilst there was a bit, you could actually see the difference. So that was a really good marker quite early on. I mean, we were really interested in what the newest technology might bring. And so we followed it through. So we actually took DNA samples sort of almost far earlier or samples for DNA, not across the board, just selected ones almost as these changes were happening. And obviously, this huge capability now where you can take the degraded DNA and multiply it and begin to create something that you can then look at. And the results that we've had from the most recent stuff is both the mitochondrial DNA that you get through the mother's line and the genomic, which is the combination of the entire gene, so your mother's and your father's, and being able to do that and combine with the isotope analysis, which is a range of isotopes which are basically chemical signature, that are within the environment, the groundwater that you take in as a child, which is in your teeth, we can begin to look at things like where somebody was born. You can do that with DNA or you can do that with the isotope. So we've done two things in the last few years. We've done both of those processes. Having said that, the bones from the marrows are in excellent condition and so we can extract DNA and we have and you can read it and you get good isotope information. So the isotope information that we've obtained from nine individuals tells us that five of them were not born in England. And this is as a result of looking at strontium, which tells you a bit about the bedrocks so the geological area, the sulfur, which tells you the distance from the sea, the nitrogen, which will tell you the type of diet. So is it protein rich? Is it fish protein? Is it animal protein? Because that gives a different signature. The oxygen, which will give you roughly the zone, the amount of rainfall and the temperature. And then sulfur, which gives you the distance from the sea. You can sort of By a patchwork mechanism, because you've got these isotope zones that show you in different parts of the world, the zone that you're in, it's a figure of numbers, plus or minus. And you can work out the areas where people might have come from. And you can certainly say that four out of those nine weren't born in Britain, but the fifth, we actually had DNA done, and that says that his father was a North African. So those are some of the things that we've been able to do with the technology now. The problem is that that is still destructive. It takes the moment for DNA. You either use a Petrus bone that's deeply buried in the skull or teeth. Those are the best forms. And for the isotope, you need teeth. So that's two teeth for the isotope, then something else for DNA. So we've kept it very basic because, you know, you hope that those techniques will evolve in such a way that they won't be destructive in the future. And so we're only doing it when we have specific questions that we really want to answer, or you want to have the ability to realize what the assemblage might give you in the future should you want to do more. So to keep the research alive, but always knowing that perhaps keeping some back would be really good because techniques hopefully be less destructive. So we're also looking at other ways. So we've got a huge skeletal assemblage, but we do have a problem with 179 skulls, but only about 25 can be matched with the rest of the bodies because they've been built from sort of the spine upwards. But if you haven't got the last bits of the spine, you can't do it. And obviously having 98 fairly complete skeletons but only 25 of them matched with skulls means you can only put 25 faces on people whereas potentially with 179 skulls you might be able to match all of those bodies in 98 with a skull and so it's how you do that without testing everything for DNA and so we're looking at things like the minerals within bones by Things like Raman spectroscopy and DEXA, which are non-destructive, so it's just almost like a CT scan type of thing. Both, I think, can be used on live individuals as well, so you can compare them. And so we've done that to see whether you can get a chemical signature from different bones. So at the moment at Lancaster, we have a whole lot of spines out there to see whether each of the spinal column is the same for the same person. We've also got hands and feet from the same person to see by using bone mineral whether you can actually use that as a matching thing to help rebuild. So there are all these experiments going on at the moment, and some of them are literally just for experimental purposes to see how you can push that technology to help archaeology. But you don't necessarily know what the results will be. What We do know with the early ramen stuff that we were able to get chemical signatures for a bone that was deformed that we put down to being vitamin C deficiency, scurvy, and one that was in vitamin D deficiency, which is a bowed fibula and tibia and things. And those had completely different chemical signatures. So there is the potential for that. And we're looking at things like that at the moment.
2: Hannah Matthews is a curator at the Mary Rose Trust. And I asked her to tell me more about working with the human remains and what we can learn about the people who manned the ship. Now your background is in osteoarchaeology and One thing it's easy to forget about the Mary Rose is that she's also a mass grave. And you've done quite a lot of work with looking at the human remains. Tell us about your work.
5: What has always fascinated me with history is that human element. So for me, whether it's social, architectural history, it's really all about the people and their story and I just feel like you can't get closer to an individual than through their own being and their own remains. I trained as an osteoarchaeologist and was fortunate enough to work with the collection here at the Mary Rose. So from the wreck, during the excavations in the late 70s, early 80s a number of human skeletons were recovered they were analyzed post excavation all of the human remains that were recovered were what we term as commingled so there was no clear pattern unlike land graveyards where everything's more or less neatly arranged this was a jumble essentially of skeletal elements all different types so the original analysis was undertaken by Dr Anstey in the 80s And from that, we do have a really good understanding of what was recovered from what part of the ship. And Dr. Sterling was also able to partially reconstruct some of the skeletons. So she was able to partially reconstruct 92 individuals, but the rest do remain as commingled because of not being able to make those associations between bones. See, as last summer, I was able to look at the whole assemblage in its entirety for only the second time that's ever been done, so following in Dr. Sterling's work. And my main aim was to actually now apply new methods of looking at the numbers of skeletal elements and how that can now show us more about the number of individuals on board. Because her work was done back in the 80s, early 90s, and in the last decade or two, these methods have really developed and progressed. So I was able to apply these to the collection, having first counted and identified everything again. So that's about 9,000 human skeletal elements, to count, to identify, to record before I was able to then apply these methods. So yes, it was quite a long summer of (laughs) counting bones, but it's such a privilege to be able to work on this collection. So tell
2: me, the non-scientific historian here, about these methods that you're talking about in layman's terms.
5: So the human body, the best way for us to start identifying the number of individuals that are represented by a collection of human bones, is to look at pairs. Pair matching is really a vital part of these methods. So if you can find two thigh bones and you're able to visually pair match those together, that is one individual. So you're always looking at lefts and rights and if any match. And then once you've totaled together all the types of pairs, you essentially take your individual lefts, your individual rights, your pair match bones and the calculator will then give you an estimated number of the individuals represented by those bones. There are different methods though, so some methods give you the minimum number of individuals that are definitely represented within a collection. So in the Mary Rose collection we have at least 179 individuals that we know for definite were on board the Mary Rose as she sank. 179 179 so they may only be represented by one or two bones but we know for definite that bone belongs to an individual and there were 179 people represented from the bones that were recovered but that you're saying is the conservative estimate that's the minimum the minimum you then get methods where you can now look at the most likely number of individuals so you're taking what has been recovered but then applying, they call it recovery probabilities, so the probability of what hasn't been recovered, and then there's another calculation for that which estimates the total population essentially. And that's a method that's actually been used for decades now within the animal zooarchaeological world, but has only recently started to be applied to the human skeletal collections. So that's something that I was able to apply last summer when I was doing my work because how many men were on board when the Mero sank is an unanswered question. We don't have a definitive list of who was on board, how many at the time of the sinking. So it's another way for us to add to the evidence and that estimation of how many could potentially have been on board. And what's your upper figure using this probability theory? The results from that method bring it to around over 300 men on board we do have documentary evidence where it suggests that there were probably about 400 400 plus men on board so this could suggest there were actually fewer men than would usually have been used to operate the ship so potentially that could be a factor of why it maybe wasn't being operated as it could have been in those circumstances And that's
2: fascinating too, because one of the arguments is often put forward about why the Mary Rose sank is that she was
5: overmanned. Yes. When I was originally looking at this piece of research and looking for estimations of numbers of men on board, I got ranges from 400 to 700. So it's quite a broad range to work with. The fact that this gives us a potential number of around 300 or just over suggests that there were actually fewer. But this method is in quite early stages of being applied to human remains. So we are adding that to the evidence we have, but also we need to factor in these recovery probabilities because we haven't recovered everything that potentially could be recovered from down there. There's still unknowns in terms of what isn't able to be recovered to complete that collection. So it's very much an estimation, but it's a fascinating insight into potentially there could have been fewer men than have previously been thought.
2: And am I right in thinking you did some research on where the bodies were as
5: far as the skeletons can tell us? Yes. So every skeletal remain that was recovered was recorded from the deck sector. So you've got the decks of the ship and then also the ship has been split into 12 zones essentially. So within these squares on this plot of the ship you can see exactly where each skeletal remain was recovered from and what part of the ship. So by counting the elements recovered, plotting them from where they were found on the wreck, you can see these accumulations of skeletal remains in very specific areas of the ship. And then putting that over a plan of what we believe the ship was like structurally, these accumulations do actually occur where they're called the companionways, but essentially the ladders that would have taken you between different decks there is quite a high concentration of human skeletal remains around where these ladders would have been, which when I first put the plot together, I think I was so focused on the numbers and the counting and the data, but seeing this plot appear of these people who in that moment were going down with the ship, but trying to essentially escape, but seeing that purely based on human remains was a very sobering moment, and it was a real snapshot of that moment in time but that human story of that was their final moment but purely represented through their skeletal remains that were recovered. There was no other data involved but essentially the shape of the ship appeared before me just through where the remains were found.
2: Yes it speaks of a desperate scrabbling to try and get up the ladder between the decks each clambering over each other but actually found in the end at the base of those ladders. So you said that in the 1980s, it was possible to identify 92 complete
5: skeletons. Yes, fairly complete, partially reconstructed skeletons. We do term fairly complete skeletons, but their completeness, they're not, I think our most complete is about 55, 60% complete. Yes, through association between skeletal elements, you can start to build up an individual from their remains that were recovered. And Dr. Sterland was able to, from the assemblage of remains, identify or partially reconstruct 92 skeletons. Last summer when I was going through the assemblage again, I was able to find new associations between bones from the remaining commingled skeletal elements. And we've now actually upgraded that figure to 98, fairly complete, partially reconstructed, skeletons.
2: Now discovering those six extra individuals and being able to see their partially complete skeletons must give you lots of information about the crew that you didn't have.
5: What can it tell us? It does, especially as one of the newly reconstructed individuals is we believe the youngest individual that was on board at the time. It's much easier to identify non-adult remains just through the development of the skeletal elements, it's very easy to pair match non adult skeletal remains because they're at a similar development stage. So, in one of the commingled boxes, there was a very young individual. From looking at his upper arm bone, it seems as though he was potentially between the ages of 10 and 12 years old. We know there were younger individuals on board, and Dr. Sterling had identified a number of teenagers and preteen boys. But this individual takes us to even younger, which again was a very sobering moment in terms of looking at this little skeleton and realising that this was a young child working on board the May Rose and obviously went down with the ship with the rest of the crew. So he was found on the Orlop deck, so that's quite low down in the ship, and he was actually with a number of other individuals that were found alongside him, including a couple of adults and a slightly older boy. And this was actually near one of the ways. So this was near to one of the potential ladders we think was there. So again, yeah, very harrowing to consider his final moments at such a tender age and fascinating to be able to identify now this youngster who we can now make an individual from and to hopefully tell more of his story about the boys on board the Mary Rose. You would have had cabin boys, you would have had Boys that were assigned to specific roles, so you'd have had gunners boys, the cook would have had young assistants. Some boys would have been apprenticed, so they'd have been learning the trade on board. A lot of the men would have potentially started off at a similar age, so very young you'd have been learning your trade and this would have been your life's work for the rest of the time. So it wasn't unusual to have boys of this age on board and serving on warships and in battle. And yeah, generally just helping the ship function and looking after the crew in general.
2: I like to think that those two adults were shepherding the boys to the
5: exit, even if it didn't work. It was quite reassuring to know that he wasn't entirely alone in terms of where his skeletal remains were recovered from. He certainly wasn't alone, which is reassuring.
2: In today's episode, we have learnt not only about the cutting-edge marine archaeology that allowed the Mary Rose to be raised 40 years ago, but also about the exciting research and breakthroughs in conservation, materials and osteoarchaeology that have happened since. In our next and final episode, to mark the 40th anniversary of the raising of the Mary Rose, I explore how the ship, her objects and early attempts to salvage her give unrivaled insights into the Tudor world. Do join me. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at notjusttudors or by email notjustthetudors at historyhit.com.